Hello everyone and welcome to BYOB, bring your own blockbuster. We've got an absolute stormer of an episode for you this week and I'm joined by oh, yeah. the god daddy himself, Jack Hussey. How are you, sir? Oh yeah. It's like the Godfather, but it's just a bit more kinky. Isn't yeah, a bit racy, a bit saucy. It's like Godfather After Dark. Do you, remember, do you remember Hollyoaks After Dark? I do, yeah. I've always wondered, you know, I've always, I've always wondered why. I've, I've always felt, anyway, I'm not wondering anything. I've always felt that EastEnders have always dropped the ball not doing like an EastEnders After Dark. Why don't they? Like, a bit I mean, more uh, sordid, a bit more... Imagine the Mitchell brothers going to town on somebody. You muggy little fucking... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Bashing someone up. Drop the ball on that, mate. Like, it would have been massive, massive. Well, okay, let's just, let's just say, let's show our age. Mm. Um, what is the EastEnders storyline that you remember from your childhood? The biggest one. It, Go it's, on. It's, it's, it's Pat and Peggy, you bitch, you cow. It's that is like the big one. Is that the one for you? Okay, and then so after that, oh, the, go, yeah, go on. Go on, no, no, go on. I want to know your next one, just in case it's, it's similar to mine. And then it's... You ain't my mother. Yes, I am. <laughs> mm, that's the next one. Yeah. Amazing. And then the other one for me, who shot Phil Mitchell? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge vibes. And I remember that there was one more. There was a guy. I think his name was Johnny something. And he had a daughter called Ruby. And he got in a big tear up oh. with the Mitchells. Hang on. Yeah, I kind of remember this. I kind Johnny of remember Allen. This, this is... Johnny Allen? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, that, yeah. like, look, there was, a, there was an era. There was Nasty an era. I remember, fella. actually, there was a mate at uni. I remember there was a, I had a mate at uni who used to watch it religiously every every single time it was on. And we were like, mate, we were going out. It's like, nah, EastEnders. It's like, okay. <laughs> no worries, buddy. It, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's hard for people to sort of realise, like, now I think, you know, the the, the, the viewership is, is still dedicated. It's still got a big viewership, but... Back in the day, man, before the streaming services, it yeah. was Every night, people right? were like four nights a week, Huge. wasn't it? And then the Omnibus, Huge. incredible vibes. If people are in the US and have no idea what we're talking about, basically it was a, a British soap opera that's still running now and it is, it, it's been going for a long, long time, sort of 30 plus years. It's, it, and it, is, it was massive. It used to be a mainstay and every year someone dies at Christmas or something big happens at Christmas and it becomes a kind of staple part of Christmas Day viewing, I think, is the, the big EastEnders episode on Christmas Day. Um, mate, the, how the, the running order would usually be for most households, wouldn't it be Emmerdale, switch over for EastEnders, switch back for Coronation Street, wouldn't it? They'd sort of, they, the they seem to have that mutually assured thing of like, we want everyone to be able to watch everything, so let's not clash all the programmes, right? Yeah, and the reason why we got into this was the whole Hollyoaks After Dark thing. Hollyoaks was at 6.30, so it's it sort was, of slightly yeah. younger audience. So or you've if kind you're of, watching the Omnibus, sponsored by I Go By Toyota. I Go uh, By Toyota, on, on, yeah. I Go By Toyota sponsors E4, or T4, was, sorry. Or was it E4 was or it? T4? T4? Which one? Uh, T4. E4. E4 was where you Sunday could watch mornings. like Friends... E4 okay. was like channel on Freeview was channel 30 and then E4 plus one and 31. So it was great because if you missed friends on on E4, you just whack on plus one, which is absolutely gross. I used to spend that's way too much of my life on on watching E4, Scrubs, Friends. Oh, it was brilliant, man. Come on. Oh, you would just, be, there, just be on in the background like all day on a weekend, right? Do you know yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And then T4. The house, you I actually, E4 T4. Are you a Simon Amstel fan? Uh, I, I, do you know what? I did used to like him. I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion. 
I think he got a bit too nasty at times on Buzzcocks. I agree. I winced a little bit. Maybe we're soft. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. I thought he was very funny. I do think he's very funny, very quick-witted. But at times, I do think he pushed it a little bit. Like, I, I say, I do think, like, old Preston does seem like a bit of a whopper. But I understood where he was coming from. I understood uh, it, when he walked off. I am getting old as well. Digging out his missus, you know? Yeah, because if someone was digging out your missus, you'd probably be like, yeah, come on. It's a little bit much. But they well, kind of do it under the under the sort of guise of this is all fun and games you know what you're signing up for but yeah, there were but other people who got a much more easy ride yeah there was a guy and called james Lance. do you remember when that when you look back on all that type of stuff as well it's kind of it's usually all a bit nasty and classist as well it's a load of uh, generally middle class oxbridge people or sitting around being like ha 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 look at this stupid working class person talking in a silly way and you're kind of like Meh. yeah and know, what, what are you doing here sitting amongst us you yeah. know how how, so. how how lucky for you that you get to do this. But I, I do remember, though, I, I, one thing I would say is when he was coming through and he was on Pop World and he used to do those Brilliant. interviews with Nikita people. Oliver. Yeah, amazing. Like, those two together, like, unbelievable dynamic. Like, incredible dynamic. Anyway, I digress. How are you, mate? How has life been over the course of the last week or so? All good, mate. I should let anybody know who's listening, anybody who's watching now will know already, that I thought in, in keeping with today's episode i will be sipping a glass of red wine as we, I thought you, as we go along so i wonder where you're gonna I, I go don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a horse's head alongside <laughs> yeah, i was gonna like say i've actually brought yeah. this lovely horse's head and i'm covered in blood yeah. so that's great <laughs> <laughs> i've forgotten how shocking that was i can't wait to get into it can't wait to get oh, into it mate, yeah. um, you're jumping ahead there you're jumping ahead majorly um if we're talking about how we've been this week, right? I, I, I'm going to jump in and say, have you been to the cinema this week? Yeah, and I know the answer, but yeah. for the first people at time, home... I think this is the first time that you and I have been to see the same film on the same day at the same time. Oh, yeah, buddy. We jumped on that hype train. Big time. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. Um, our producer, Purdy, said it in, in this way. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning part one with a very sort of like stodgy sanctimonious tone but i was very hyped for this and and i believe you were as well right yeah yeah i was looking for look as we kind of touched on last week i appreciate there are issues that surround tom cruise off camera that people myself included find a bit strange but if we're talking about in a purely cinema sense in that old football way, rivalry aside and all that rivalry type of thing, aside, leaving, leaving politics out of football, <laughs> right? In a purely cinema sense, I think the guy is one of the biggest champions of the cinema, like for a very long time. And I was, you know, I was, I was reflecting on this as I was going in to watch this. I was thinking, whatever, we, you know, we, we can all rag on the superhero movies a bit and stuff. But I think what we're starting to see now really most of all is, okay, the, the superhero movies are still there. But they're not dominating the space as much on screen anymore. Yes. And what we're also starting to see now is that the pandemic is kind of behind us a bit now. Of course, there was going to be a bit of a lag out the back of a global pandemic when most production stopped, when there were all these kind of crazy rules on filming and on set and all this type yeah. of thing. But I was suddenly thinking now, like, wow, like, look at the cinema now. 
Like, look at it. We've got this. We've got Indiana Jones. We've got Mission Impossible. We've got Barbie. We've got Oppenheimer. We've got Napoleon coming up. Like, it's back. It's back, baby. Cinema yeah, is back. I, like, can, it's mad. And people just, are buzzing, you know? I just want to throw into the mix. I think you shared this the other day, and it was, was it? Yeah, I think it was you shared this the other day in our group. And it was Tom Cruise talking about going to see Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah. And the order in which you'll go and see it and the fact they'll make a weekend of it. And I mean, there's always stories of Tom Cruise. Let's, I, I, I will add my weight and heft to this as well. Rivalry aside, Scientology aside. <laughs> and also, like, if we do the rivalry aside, that's class. That very much, like, I suppose the rival would be Scientology. And then on the other side would be Louis Theroux. So, like, yeah, I'm a Louis yeah. Theroux stan. So, yeah, but, realistically, yeah. <laughs> rivalry aside and... Hopefully Louis won't judge us for this. Uh, Chuck uh, the Scientology in the bin for five minutes, which I know is very difficult uh, to do. The, what he does for cinema and his unwavering commitment to it is quite staggering. I, I've heard stories of him going to premieres and literally missing the film because he spends so much time outside with fans engaging with people, thanking them for turning out, making sure that people get that opportunity to have the interaction with someone who's on the big screen. Now, I think that is so missing. I've been I've been lucky enough to go to a few premieres and often you can really tell the people that are like, mm. I'm going to commit to this. I'm going all in and I'm going to give this absolutely everything that I've got in terms of the PR train. And he is, I would say, almost one of a kind. He's out on his own in terms of how PR a film and what he'll do. And it, 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 even at the beginning of this film, when it starts with, it says that a Tom Cruise production, it kind yeah. of did a little something to me. I was like, wow, this guy, man, he's a bit of a force of nature. Do you know what I mean? Dude, he made Top Gun in a pandemic. Like, yeah. Top yeah. Gun. Like, one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Like, the, the second one, you know? Like, and, and, and that was brilliant. Like, that was brilliant. That was good. Yeah, it was very simple. It was very, does exactly what it says on the tin. But it was great. And you, you've heard that. I'm sure everyone's heard that. Very intense. And yeah, okay, we might be able to question people's workplace conduct, the way somebody in a position of power speaks to people underneath. I, I, I do understand that to a degree. But... His very impassioned kind of plea to the people working on set who had been said to have broken kind of the very, very strict COVID protocols that I believe he'd negotiated in order to be able to make that film. He'd personally been on the front line being like, yes, I guarantee that the set will meet X, Y, Z kind of you know, stipulations. Your personal guarantees, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, whatever, it took maybe a few days for people to start walking around without masks off. And he was just like, do you fucking realise what's on the... Have you heard it? Have you heard yeah, his, like, impassioned yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's like, just saying, like, do you realise, like, what we're doing? This is important. And Don't you think when you're jobs, listening you know? to that as well, it's like, you can imagine if you never worked on a production in any way, shape or form, or you've never worked on a kind of, on a, even a, a site let's just say if you've worked externally from an mm. from an office you, you might not necessarily understand where that's coming from but when you are someone that works out in the field as such you you 
totally get where that impassioned plea comes from. Is it's kind of maybe it's a bit too intense, maybe it's a bit much, but it's not coming from a place of someone who doesn't care about the product they're trying to no. create. It's not him being like, "Wow, you're going to m- make sure I don't get lots of money from this." It's like he's so intensely driven to create something spectacular that he wants everyone to take it as seriously as him. Don't you think, though, because this is the thing, like, you see that kind of a Tom Cruise production, and I get it, like, you know, he makes these movies, he casts himself as the main guy, he's kind of one of the leading figures in Scientology, whatever. I do, I do understand how people would think he, you know, he probably is something of a narcissist, I do get that, but I, maybe I'm a poor judge of character, I, I like to think I'm not. I do feel like with a lot of this stuff, there is, yes, maybe, like I say, that element of narcissism, but I do think really overwhelmingly so there is a genuine and true real love for the cinema for movies for the film industry and to make brilliant films and to support other people making good films you know yeah like maybe i'm naive in saying that but i don't think it is all about him i think it is about cinema you know yeah i i agree with that and i do think this kind of like look listen i'm sure I'm sure there's a small part of him that dies inside when someone is like, oh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, what are you going to watch? As in sort of like, there's probably a bit of him that's like, really, you're asking me this when I've just created this huge blockbuster, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one, is it is undeniably an enormous film. But to have the ability to understand how important it is for you to engage and be like, this is a huge cinematic weekend coming up when Barbie and Oppenheimer are are released. And I need to be a part of that conversation to ensure that the workplace and the environment that I am currently hoping to continue to thrive in remains a kind of fertile ground to build on. I, I really, I do admire that and I do appreciate that. And I think at a time when, it could have easily cinema could have easily come out of COVID and and gone to shit. Like there is a there is a possible world where the streaming services just became too dominant and where, where cinemas shut should, down everywhere. You exactly. Know? And, and and sorry, go on, go on. I was just going to say just just on that note that you were saying previously, just so we don't get too far from that, is that you know he's made this Mission Impossible movie, and it's been it's been made for IMAX screens, mm. and it's sandwiched mm. between Indiana Jones and Oppenheimer. And he's been told he's got such a very limited run for this in IMAX because Oppenheimer is basically taking all of the IMAXs everywhere because Nolan has worked so closely with IMAX for pretty much the entirety of his career. And Cruz has taken that with pretty good grace, you know? Yeah. Because I think he's seen it again as, okay, well, that's for the good of cinema, you know? And I don't know. I I think maybe, yeah, one might argue it's easy to do that when you're Tom Cruise and you are probably the biggest action star of all time if not you know one um, of anyway most people would find that harder mate i think honestly most people would find it harder to stomach because you'd be like i'm tom cruise sort of yeah. thing and, Do you and know who i am that exactly that vibe and and i think when we talk about the film as well he's there is a humility to the way that he approaches making films like this in terms of the fact that he is not afraid to put himself and and totally prepared to put himself in a position that that I'm sure 99.9% of people would be like no thank you 
You know, I'm mm. I'm not having. I do not want to do that. And and I mean, mm. look, we should we should kind of you go first. What did you think of it, me? Um, I, I you know I I've watched all of the Mission Impossible films. I I I, I don't you know I would say the first one was a huge cultural event for the very first. Mission Impossible film when he's coming down through the lasers and all that type of thing. And it's a very similar, I think from what I remember, because I was pretty young at the time, but I remember there was a similar kind of deal to what you've got with Barbie and Oppenheimer at the moment. Because I remember the Mission Impossible film and the Spice Girls movie came out at like the same time. No way. Yeah. And I think there was like a big vying for screen time and all that type of thing. But I remember watching both of those as a kid. I saw, yeah, I saw Mission Impossible with my dad and then spice world i think i I think i saw with some mates um that type of thing um so i remember those and i've watched them kind of down the years with a passing interest i think the last one that i was really interested in was rogue nation which was a couple um of them ago and then i think the last one with henry cavill was ghost protocol which I suddenly really enjoy. I thought Henry Cavill. I think he's brilliant, Henry Cavill. I really like him. Okay, um, cool. You know a lot of stuff, and I yeah, I I thought he was really good in that. I thought the kind of the movie had taken quite a lot of learnings from kind of the Bourne films from the mm. from the Got Daniel Craig era. Yeah, from the Craig era Bond movies, but also managed to keep its own spin on everything. You know, the whole of this message will self-destruct in you know, five seconds of your mission if you choose to accept it, all that type of thing. Um, so they, they, they had that and the, obviously the iconic theme tune and everything like that. So I, I was going into this one thinking, well, Top Gun was great. This has been made for IMAX. I really like the last one. So I, I was, my expectations were not sky high because, like I said, I'm not wedded to the Mission Impossible franchise. Um but I went in thinking, I am going to enjoy this. I think this is going to be like high fare. It's globe trotting. It's espionage. It's action. I think everybody had seen the the kind of little making of featurette of Tom Cruise doing the now probably going to be iconic shot of him motorbiking off the side of a mountain, which he did himself. He motor, motorbiked off the side of a mountain and parachuted to the bottom of it in the movie to land on a train. Um, so that was kind of exciting. Um, but I I would, I would genuinely say to, to, to cut to how I felt about this, I honestly think it was one of the most astonishingly brilliant action films I've ever seen. Dare I say, if not, (laughs) I honestly think the greatest action film ever made. Like, wow. It, it, it blew my mind, mate. It absolutely, and I, I appreciate I'm, really hyping this but i've got like i said i've got no skin in the game like i i just i I watched this kind of thinking like okay this is gonna be good and like i say it was seen after seeing every single action set piece to me was expertly plotted expert well choreographed do you know what i mean but like in terms of it was expertly envisioned expertly choreographed and expertly executed like I, i and it was like I say, it was set piece after set piece after set piece, various different ones, ones in vehicles, ones of people suspended in kind of midair, fighting hand-to-hand combat ones, like all of it. I just thought it was exciting all the way, start to finish. You know, an airport scene at the beginning, which was high espionage, which was mm-hmm. somebody sneaking around, trying to go around undetected. They managed to do it brilliantly. And, I, I, and 
I, I, I just sort of left the cinema, like thinking it was one of, I didn't do it, but it was one of those, yeah, people applauded in the screen at the end and it felt like everybody was walking out like, what have we just watched? That was fucking amazing. Like the last, the last sort of act of the film just felt like you're sitting there, like gripping the edge of your seat, like, and your face is being like pushed back by G-force of what was going on on screen. I, I just, I, I loved it, mate. I absolutely loved it. Like 10 out of five, you know, I thought it was, <laughs> I, I thought it was amazing. Like amazing. You're not alone so, either. Like the reviews are overwhelmingly positive. Like, I, I think it's literally, like, the percentages are sort of, like, you're looking at 90%, 95% of reviews are incredibly positive. And, and all of the, I think, for me, I, so I have to be the sad ball bag that it, it didn't feel the same, <laughs> which I feel like I'd absolute ass for doing. Um, where I totally agree, I think the action is up there with some of the best action I've ever seen in any film ever. Like, I think... The, for me, I love the airport sequence. And if you yeah. haven't seen it, apology for the spoiler, but the airport sequence not only managed to kind of draw you into the kind of edge of your seat, are they going to get caught? Aren't they going to get caught? But also drew you into the start of the story. And I was really hoping that the film would do a little bit more around the kind of story that they... Again, bit of a spoiler alert here, but there's a kind of sequence where someone kind of almost like disappears in front of his eyes, mm. and I, I that for me, I was like, oh, where are they going to go with this? I quite like this. I also like the 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 pre credit sequence as well. I thought that was very well done. I thought that kind of gave us a reason to be invested in the film. I loved the stunts. I thought the the car chase was brilliant. Um, there's a couple of Bond ripoffs there for me. Considering yeah, yeah. I watched For Your Eyes Only this weekend and it has the Citroen 2CV, which was exchanged for a Fiat 500, which is being I ragged around. I think they're quite around. knowing nods though, don't you? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're kind of very... And the same with the idea of like jumping off the cliff and getting the parachute down. I mean, that's yeah. the iconic Spy Who Loved Me sort of Bond thing. Only like Roger Moore 100% did not do that. It just cut to this <laughs> close up of his bum chin. Like while, yeah. while he sort of like was strapped into this yellow ski suit. Um, the thing that my drawback, right? The thing that I struggled with, I felt like every time you have one of these magnificent set pieces, it was then followed because the set pieces were so good and so dramatic and so big. It was then followed by these relative periods of kind of like quite slow, quite lethargic, very lumpy dialogue where they had to really explain like, why are we going to do this next thing? Well, we've got to go and do this next thing because of this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. And you were, uh, uh, to me, I would, I wanted a little bit more of the kind of story stuff. Mm. And, and I think actually this is more about me not being a huge fan of action films as such. Like mm. I'm, I much prefer the kind of psychological stuff. That's why to me, something like Skyfall actually massively preferred Skyfall as a Bond film because it felt like it had a quite an emotional nod to it um yeah. but i do confess that i'm not a, a mission impossible aficionado so i loved the first couple and i got lost somewhere in between when it got to the point where there were more and more of them i do I, I, I as i say i do think the action in this is 
almost unparalleled. There's not many films that can do what this film has done. And even the even the, the sort of the train sequence at the end, the oh. sort of like flying through the, the carriages and stuff and the, the bit on top of the train. And that was even a nod to an early Mission Impossible, right? The first Mission yeah, Impossible. Yeah, the first Mission Impossible, yeah. yeah. Um, and and like, I mean, the, that, that was that in itself was really cool. I also think there was some really cool hand-to-hand fight scenes which are good. And again, I I will come back to the point that we started with. I can criticize the storytelling and some clunky dialogue and the scripting. I cannot find any fault whatsoever with the level of commitment that Tom Cruise has to filmmaking and his own personal ability at, at the age that he's at now. And I'm not sure what he is in terms of age, but the age that he is now, he's not 23, 24 anymore. He's in his 60s, 62, 63, I think. Physically, the running scenes, the action, the stunts that he performs himself, he is like no one else in in the space having the range of skill that he has and the daring and the panache to kind of go after it and get it, so... I didn't enjoy the the film on the whole as as a kind of like as a piece of film as a piece of entertainment and the action I'm it's just phenomenally well crafted. I kind of know you mean. I I, I do know you mean. I think I do think the dialogue is is kind of clunky in places. It's kind of you know I think the whole premise is kind of cheesy. I like some of the themes in there. I do like Me this too. kind of idea yeah. of like you know there's this digital paranoia the the fear of ai where it's going to go there's a kind of you know there is nodded to with the, the the director of the cia when he's talking about there is a big war coming and the war is the last war it's the war about who's got the last amount of drinkable water the breathable air the space that can cultivate crops that paranoia is something that we all feel right and i, yeah. I like that it's kind of nodded to that i think there's also some relevance there with the film industry itself, with the the fear about AI and where it's going, we're seeing the writer strikes at the moment. With that being a kind of moving piece to it, so yeah, I, I, I but I, I know what you mean. I think at times it it was very. I, I don't want you know I don't I don't want to be too disparaging to it because I really I really enjoyed the film, but I, I, some of the set pieces felt a little stock, maybe like some of the the kind of the dialogue-y parts and. Maybe it's because, like, like you touch on, I'm not as emotionally tied into kind of the the fate of Ethan Hunt as a person or anything. I didn't maybe feel the emotional beats particularly keen keenly. You know, we won't go into that. We won't spoil any of those things. But you know, there are certain moments within the film that I kind of was like, okay, cool. Well, I see what's happened there. But yeah, like I say, in in terms of just the the action itself. And the way it unfolds on screen, because I would say probably I am like, you know, I like all types of films, right? I, I don't have a particular, some of my mates, you know, cause I did like a film degree and I do this type of thing. They all have this idea that I'm going to be some like art house aficionado that only appreciates whatever. Like I also grew up like with most people on a diet of Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Do you know what I mean? Like all yeah. those types of movies. I love those movies and I still enjoy an action film. Sometimes you just want to, sometimes you don't always have to sit down and have an expose on the human condition. Sometimes you just want to watch explosions and fights and switch off for a bit. And yes, I, yeah. I felt really that this movie, as a vessel for intense action, for excitement, for 
people who are still putting in the craft to practical effects, because I think many of those effects are practical. It's not a CGI fest. No, it's not. It's not. You feel those kind of beats very well. I watched it in IMAX as well. And it, it, yes, it, I've, yeah. I'm, I'm often quite sceptical of 3D or having to watch something in IMAX or, you know, your average cinema screen is still massive. Your average cinema still has a good sound system, right? But it felt like this movie being made for IMAX, watching it in IMAX, it it was pretty special. And yeah, like I say, it, it melted my skin <laughs> for, yeah. for, for two and a bit hours or whatever it was, the running time. And yeah, it's exhilarating. I do think maybe in a in a couple of weeks' time, I'll probably go watch it in the cinema again to to get the cinema really? experience. Yeah, yeah, I think okay. I will. Okay, well, I, I let, really let, liked it. I let really me know it. what what it's like when you watch it again and because I didn't yeah. watch it in IMAX, so I watched it in the cinema. So I wonder if there's a difference there. But also get in touch at BYOB Pod and let us know what you thought of it because I'd love to hear more opinions on this one, particularly as we go into Barbenheimer week. Um, oh yeah. Look, we've got a we, we've got such a big film today. We've got this is a monster. This is just it really it's, is. it's almost beyond comprehension in terms of its size um, and its cultural impact. Um, and I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna bottle it. I'm going to bottle it, and I will take the <laughs> ribbing. I'll take the beat down. I don't You're think a I Tottenham can... fan, mate. Way. One there of us. One Way. of us. Um, I don't think I can spoil this film in 60 seconds. Um, tell us what you picked this week, Jack. I picked uh, the Francis Ford Coppola classic, widely accepted as the greatest film of all time, The Godfather. Do you think it is? Uh, I. Do, do you want me to... Give you the really boring ball baggy answer to that. I would like all of your ball bag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I find such questions quite reductive. I think that there are many different brilliant films that are brilliant for different reasons that I just think saying one to be that binary about something like this does not only this film a disservice, but many other films a great disservice. But Perfect say, ball bagging. Yeah, but I would say it is one of the greatest films ever it's out made. It's there, right? It's inspired so many other great films. Huge cultural impact. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And considering it was made in 1972, I would say up front, having watched this back, this could have been made in the 90s. Like, it was... Yeah, yeah. The, it's starting to age now, right? It was made on film. It was not a digital production, but it's still brilliant. It's amazing. Did you, like, when you watched it back, when did you watch it? Did you watch it this weekend? Yes, yeah. So when you watched it, I uh, I don't know whether this was the same for you. I I loved it. it look, I'm, a, I'm a massive football head and I'm sure people will know that from having listened to various episodes of the pod that we've done where we've spoken about our beloved Spurs. But I love watching back classic Spurs goals, highlights from grainy film footage on a VHS. You know, it, it does something yeah. for me, kind of like the nostalgia of it. It did not jar with me a single ounce, the fact that this was kind of, that it looked a bit old school. I, if anything, it made me enjoy it more, I think. It, it adds to the to the flavour of the whole thing, doesn't it? A hundred percent. The sort of charm and 
I think also <clears throat> there's this there is this really nice feeling that it's frozen in time from a technology point of view. Do you know exactly what I was going to say, mate? It's like slapping on an old vinyl and hearing the crackle and all yes, that type of thing. Yeah. You know? No one at any point in the film is going to pull out a phone and just call out for help. You know? <laughs> no one's <laughs> just going to... like. And we'll come on to some of these points, but no one's just going to quickly, quickly Google what time, like where the local police office is or what time the hospital closes or no one's just going to search on Instagram where you might be able to find someone in Sicily. You know, it's it, like that. there is all of this wonderful charm to it that technology now and modern day just wouldn't allow. So for me, seeing this kind of old school feel, the fact that the film is set when it is and where it is and the fact that it's frozen in that time period is just so perfect and it, it i mean it was it's three hours isn't it it's kind of 255 or something like that let me just check yeah yeah it's right up there close, close to three hours for me it flew by it flew oh, by yeah doesn't feel I, like a three-hour film at all not at, not at all i literally just sat there and just watched and the other thing mate did you uh, most films fall into kind of classic structures right and they sort of have mm. this kind of like three act stuff this to me just felt like a just a it, it, it just felt like an almost like an examination on a theme or on a variety of themes yeah. without feeling like it ever i don't feel like you ever sitting there well this is the beginning you know and and there's such a spectrum of emotion and such a spectrum of character that i don't feel like you ever then go right well this is the end now you know, literally no, until the final shot. Because the storytelling was, and I guess this inspired a lot of latter storytelling afterwards, but it felt very modern, right? It wasn't kind mm. of, this is Don Corleone and he is the head of a family. And he it throws yeah. you in in the middle of the wedding. It throws you in, in the, well, in particular, it throws you in in The, the Undertaker pleading for Don Corleone. Not, not pleading as such, actually, really demanding that Don Corleone bring this man to justice, the man who has assaulted, the men who have assaulted his daughter in such a brutal and horrific fashion. He feels so emboldened to speak to the Don of this family, to appeal to him on this emotionally charged level to say, you know, you have done, he, he, they have done these awful things. Of course, Don Corleone will sort this out, you know? And straight away, straight away, you're dealt that, that sense of moral ambiguity in what is what is unfolding here. The fact that this this Dom character is being called in to be this judge, jury, and executioner of these two faceless men, these two people he hasn't even met. He's he has to take this man's testimony on face value and deal out this justice. And straight away you're like, fuck man, like really, this kind of this sense of moral ambiguity is something that has followed and developed over time. And we see it now like perfectly displayed in things like the Sopranos in Breaking Bad, and I'm sure there's other examples that people are screaming at me. But prior to this, you know, like, I, I couldn't tell you something that had done something as sophisticated as this off the bat, and to be as ballsy and to be as punchy as to do it in the way that they were doing in this. It, it's, you know, it's amazing, uh, right? No, uh, and also the the, from that early moment, the 
understanding that this is not a free pass. Like it, for every action, there is a reaction and f- cause and effect. And the idea that you will make a decision now, or you think you're making a decision now, you you go to the Godfather and you ask for a you ask for justice, and he'll grant you a form of justice in return for a favor. <clears throat> and yeah. that 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 whole thing for me that I have to be honest, man, that made my that's what made me so uncomfortable. That feeling of constant debt, the idea that everyone is kind of sitting there in his debt, and everyone's sitting there, and you never know who is there out of choice and who's there out of some weird sense of loyalty and this kind of sense of, like you said, like moral absolutes yet total moral ambiguity. You know, there's these, there's these things that seem to be completely absolute because we are, we're really that, that opening shot, right. Of it, of us being placed as the audience within his kind of inner sanctum Mm. Like we're we're made to be totally aware. We're made aware from the the last shot of the film when you're on the outside looking into the inner sanctum. That actually this is a really privileged position as an audience to be in. You know, we're getting this level of information. The vast, vast, vast majority of people are on the outside looking in and sort of w- wanting this kind of ability to know what's going on or to to be able to have the the power to grant favors like he does and yet where's the audience are placed on the inside of it so we have a natural affinity to don corleone that you have a natural sort of you're thinking like he's i don't know i found myself thinking even at the beginning i was like he's kind of the good guy you know he's sort of like he's going to take care of these horrible men that have done this nasty stuff but he's not a good guy like he's almost kind of the definition of a bad guy yet we sort of are rooting for him and i but just what, found that fascinating there's that interesting take though isn't it because Kay, Kay adams um michael's girlfriend partner she's saying to him you know well you know come on presidents and senators they don't they don't you know sentence men to death and send them out to die and fight for them and he's like open your eyes Kay. you that naive you know like, yeah. And so it, it does raise those questions about, you know, like, like we, we talk about the honour amongst thieves and what have you, but still this kind of question of we, we place so much trust into the establishment, if you like, to take care of us and to look after us and they do everything in our, in our kind of, you know, in our best interests. But the omerta, the, the mafia, literally exists because of the corruption that used to happen in Sicily. It was people's justice. You know, it began that way. That's what it was born out of. People looking after their own, creating their own code of contact by which they could live this, basically this court of like arbitration in a way, this sense of right and wrong as defined by by this code that people could live and abide by. And you would have caretakers of that code in, in you know, in these gangs, in these crews. And I guess over time that that did warp, probably especially once the the gang started to move over to America and everything like that, when the new world was becoming a thing. Um, But still, you know, there is this kind of sense of, well, this establishment that we we have no choice as to whether or not we kind of buy into. We see it every day. We see politicians embezzling money. We see 
unfair and unjust wars and conflicts all around the world. Yet we have total faith in this thing and people like Don Corleone are painted as the bad guy. But then equally, like you say, at the same time, he's still murdering and killing people. Like It's, it's, it's a very interesting, it's, there's a very interesting, um, I guess, story decision made. I would imagine some of it's time constraint, but I do wonder how much of it was a, was a creative choice. In the book, I have read the book um, by Mario Puzo of The Godfather. There's, there is a whole section on Don Corleone's past in, in the book, which is subsequently used as the midsection of the second movie. When you find out why he's so revered, what he's done. Because like you're saying at the top, right, you see this guy who has this this ultimate power, this over, this ultimate say, but also he's kind of, he's an older man. He's not some big brutish figure. He's not some overly terrifying man. I think what's what's done to great effect is his slow delivery, his pauses, the silence that he allows to kind of fester before he speaks. It gives him that sense of command, that sense of power. But it's more that, you know, people are coming to him to ask him to do this stuff. And he's surrounded by all these terrifying looking mobsters and mafiosos, you know, and you, you think, what does this guy have? that makes all these other people fall in line behind him. And we don't need to talk about it because that's still in the second movie. Just from what we see in this movie, that creates already this aura around this guy where you're like, well, there's something about him, right? There's something about this dude that makes all these people respect him and fear him in the way that they do. And you're entirely right. This this idea of debt around everything is, is definitely present. And to add to Don Corleone's character there, he doesn't suffer the bullshit of what this undertakes. Oh, you know, I didn't want to bother you. He's like, don't lie to me. You didn't want to be in my debt. That's what it is. And now you come to me on my daughter's wedding day. Now that I'm your last resort, you went to the police, you went to the American establishment, and of course they didn't help you. And now you come to me, your supposed friend, but I'm your last resort. You don't even invite me into your house for a coffee. You just come here and ask me to murder somebody. Wasn't that an amazing touch on the scripting? Yeah. You don't even yeah. invite me for for round to your home. You know, it's like, what? yeah, like it's so it's so. I think we've had a few examples of this over the course of the the episode far of this kind of fairly far fetched, strange, hyper real um, dialogue. Yeah. You don't even call me a friend. It's like. That this could not be more out of place. The idea of a man coming sitting there asking for someone to essentially either murder or put in intensive care a couple of people that have assaulted his daughter, and then his reaction is like, "You don't even call me a friend," <laughs> you know? It's sort of it's yeah. so bizarre. But I think that makes it all the more sinister, right? It's like you said, it makes it all the more kind of the the setup of him being sat in a room and the character is it Tom the the character that's saying Tom Hagen yeah now you will now this person will come and see you you know and again it's this honor amongst thieves things right and the the idea of a moral code or a code of mm. conduct for the the baddies that on his daughter's wedding day on his daughter's wedding day on his daughter's <laughs> wedding day um, he will grant favors to other people you know and the idea that you would take the responsibility of godfather incredibly seriously because there is this kind of 
I guess tradition heritage yeah. and I yeah. think that's that's another thing that's kind of running through the film because as we go on Don Corleone is getting he's getting older and more feeble and he's getting more and more sort of tired and just weather beaten by life and the fact that he's been, people have attempted to murder him and yet at the same time you kind of are watching it, whilst we're watching Michael's character grow and change and develop, you're also watching another kind of character in Don Corleone come to the end of his life and trying to understand what his legacy will be. Like, and trying to understand, it's sort of having to look into the mirror and confront the fact that maybe he was getting to a point where he was losing his grip on his aura and his sphere of influence and his power and... Even at that age, it wasn't, he wasn't prepared to let it go, you know, wasn't prepared to kind of step back. And he wants to maintain that same level of power that he has at the beginning of the film where person after person after person is coming to him and desperately kind of praying to him for help. And I, and there is, it's, it's kind of, I remember, I don't know why, really strange example to use but do you ever watch russell brand's ponderland there's a like really yeah, sort of a few of them yeah, just yeah like one of his stand-up things that he that he did it was an old series but he there's it in it he, he sort of says there's a um there's a strange thing about people playing with like big characters playing with cats um in scenes and you see a you see, there's a kitten in this scene, right? He's sort of stroking a kitten and he's kind of playing with it. And um, he says that there is a strange kind of, oh, look how cute this little cat is. I could just strangle it. You know, yeah, like yeah, that sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah. that really yeah. ominous, looming terror. It's at my mercy. Right? Yeah. Oh, well, look how cute it is. But at any moment, if I wanted to, I could just crush it. And, and that, aura that he has in this film is pretty much present throughout every scene up until the point where you start to see that he's slipping even when he has to sort of tell Sonny off he's like you'll never talk in a meeting like that again or whatever mm. you know because because everything is Really, I suppose the thing I'm trying to get at is that everything's a social construct, right? He's aware of the fragility of the construct around him and one wrong move could change that construct and he could lose authority or control. And um, I, I thought that he, the way that he speaks and like you said, the slow and kind of very foreboding and, and carefully crafted speech that he uses keeps you as an audience member just locked in this kind of paralysis. I mean, I... I he is from moment one incredibly scary but just totally stealing those scenes is amazing unbelievable and you know i guess this will be the i may be jumping ahead here but you know francis ford coppola as we've heard with so the making of so many films had to really fight to get marlon brando oh, on, did he? on this set so you know marlon brando's Huge movie star, right? You know, on the waterfront, these kind of, you know, massive legacy in, in Hollywood. He was 
however, notoriously difficult to work with. Um, a real diva. Um, and I think he, I think, I believe he had a quite a hedonistic lifestyle. I'm, I'm not 100% on that, so don't, don't quote well, me. I'll hold no. you to it, but <laughs> I do, but Putting I, it out there on a podcast. But what I do understand, though, is that Francis Ford Coppola had to really, like, work hard to get Marlon Brando on there. But now, I mean, we won't jump ahead to any MVP conversations because that's a tough one. But in this, look, look at Marlon Brando, like you say, his aura, the, the, the way he looks. on. But, but would you like to know an interesting thing about this, mate? He was in his 40s when he made this. No way. The, no he was, way. A lot of that was makeup. You can see some very interesting images online of Marlon Brando pre and post makeup for The Godfather. He's an absolute dreamboat still, mate. An absolute dreamboat when this was made. God, they, they managed to make him look so sort of un- disheveled. Unbelievable. Unbelievable makeup. Like a- another element to this production. But the way in which he looks in that is 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 astonishing. But yeah, like you say, I mean, I don't want to sort of compare and contrast with the book too much, but and I think we are going to get onto this um, a bit more about the kind of the clash between kind of tradition and modernity. But there's a term that I believe is used once in the film that is used throughout the book constantly, which is Mustache Pete. And it's what a lot of the young mobsters call older mobsters. Because this, this movie is set, what, in the late 1940s, right? And when we think about the golden era of the mafia in America, it's those 1920s Al Capone-type mobsters, right? Um Murder Incorporated and all that type of thing. And, I ble- oh no, actually Murder Incorporated was later. That was this time. Ignore me. But the 1920s Al Capone type, type mobsters, I think now in this movie are all the aged moustache peats, as they call them. The guys that would turn up with a Tommy gun and all that type of thing. They are seen as like old. They're out of touch. The, 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 the world wars have opened up a new world for everybody now. And that new world is... You know, telecommunications, it's it's drugs, it's sophisticated weaponry, it's a world that is modernizing, it is a world that is moving away from traditional values. And you can see, like you say there, you can see it from the from the from the very beginning, Don Corleone is still Vito Corleone is clutching onto that with both hands and 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 it's it's absolutely right what you say you know when sonny speaks at the meeting with salazzo who first comes to introduce to them the idea of drugs of the of the corleone family selling drugs that idea of breaking ranks that idea of daring to speak when somebody's addressing the don of the family it doesn't really matter like it's people having a meeting at the end of the day but corleone still has that traditional old-fashioned sense of it he's like these people are not going to fear us if even you don't fear me, you know? Yeah. How can you do that? It's not about my ego. It's about what we are. It's about what we are as a family, what we stand for, what this all represents. It's kind of like people talk about with the British Royal family, right? The crown, the queen is almost, or the king now is almost not a human being. As soon as they ascend, as soon as they are coronated, almost the person has died. They cease to exist. What they become is the crown. They become yeah. a figurehead of an institution. The state. Yeah, they are the monarch. And I mean, it, did you find when you saw that meeting with Salazzo where where he kind of comes in and, and he's speaking about 
narcotics and he's speaking about the arrival of this this sort of like i don't know i i certainly had strange kind of pangs and overlaps of oh wow this is even even at this time when this film is set the panic of the time was this thing is coming get on board or get out of the way right like unfortunately narcotics are coming and if you don't want to be if you don't want to become a dinosaur and you don't want to become a relic you're going to have to find a way to make your family and your dynasty and your kind of tribe a part of this. And it sort of even, I don't know, I just find it really strange and and, and kind of like, I, I don't know what the, the word would be, but it was just sort of really challenging. I was like, wow. I mean, the, the, drugs are such a sort of, I would say a, a strangely unwritten yet, heavily accepted part of 2023 that the, the, the existence of them is just at a point where people just kind of like, yeah, of course. But at, at the time, I mean, the film is 1972, right? And I, and it's set post second world war. Like the idea of this fear of narcotics, you know, the idea of this kind of, we, we could ruin people's lives here, you know, and it, it, there's almost a point being made then about the idea that the future is coming, you know, <laughs> the future is, whether you like it or not, the future is coming and you can kind of understand where your place in it is. I, I suppose the, the people who do it the best are the people who are able to understand their position in like the grand scheme of things. You can deny that the future is coming or you also get the people who are kind of like the chances, the early adopters, the people who want to try and ride the wave and be in there being there first and um i think that was a huge part of this like you said this kind of idea of tradition and modernity was a was a huge part of it and it's clash against the idea of traditional family values the idea like i mean we we get it with michael's character sort of kind of introducing the themes of loyalty and also being a part of his family whilst also not recognizing himself as part of the family. And by the end of the film, he's like, when he says to Fredo, he's like, don't ever speak out against the family. That's your only loyalty. I can't remember what the exact line is, but he just, he just understands it. He, he, he was becoming his father, right? He, he was a silent observer. He watched and he, he was like a sponge for it. He got it. He just got it. He was, he was, he was born to be, that role, right? He was born. To, he was born for that position, but he was going to be passed over because he was a younger son. That's you know, it's it's kind of how this stuff works, like a royal family, you know. So let, let I tell you what, because because we're at it now. Like I'd love to do this kind of. Do Do you think one of the other themes? I think is just a really cool theme within this film is the illusion of choice and the idea that some things are free will and some things you just have no control over it whatsoever. Do you think Michael had any control over becoming the Don of the family? Yes and no. I think he subconsciously put himself in a good position to be even considered to be a Don, right? Because... He could have stayed out of it. Fredo was hopeless. You know, he was put out to pasture already. You know, he's Michael's big older brother as well, as well as Sonny. But he he was he was, you know, 
Michael's older brother, who just put out to pass to go and manage things in Vegas, whatever, just go down there because it's not even an important part of our operation right now. Just make some extra money on the side kind of thing. And you have Sonny, who is obviously like a great soldier, a hot-headed guy, you know, a huge presence, fiercely loyal to the family, fiercely loyal to kind of the institution, but equally egotistical, a narcissist kind of wrapped up in his own image of being a tough guy, of being emotionally volatile. Michael was just emblematic of all of the qualities that made his father, I guess, such a feared and brilliant godfather. He listened. He waited to speak. He was thinking two steps ahead, ten steps ahead of everybody else at all times. And he never let other people know what he was thinking. And that's all that Don Corleone ever used to say to people. Never, ever let anybody know what you're thinking. Don't let them know. And he was desperately trying to let Sonny know that. You know, that's kind of that example to him in that Sonny meeting. Don't let people outside the family know what you're thinking. He's not saying it again because he's angry, because he feels under... Maybe on a certain level, yeah. But like we say, it's about preserving that institution. It's about preserving the strength of the family and knowing that Sonny will be taking the mantle. Shortly, probably. But I guess knowing secretly that he's not built for it. He's not built for it. And it was, it was the, it's the resignation that you see Don Corleone face later on. The resignation when he finds out, when he awakes from his coma, after he's been shot, because he won't kind of, you know, he won't acquiesce to the drug request and everything like that. It's business. It's not personal kind of thing. They shoot him. They gun him down. He's in a coma. He wakes up and then he's basically f filled in on everything that's happened. Where's Michael? Michael's in Italy. Why? Because he's killed people. And Don Corleone. You know he just knows in the back of his head. His kind of his his dejection of that, the way he waves them out the room. And even when he says to Michael in the first meeting, I wanted you to be the first of us to be Senator Corleone, you know? But he's resigned to it because he also knows Michael will be a brilliant godfather. And he probably knows secretly that Michael is drawn to that in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, okay, he's a bit of a clean shirt, right? He's a war hero. He stays, you know, he keeps his nose clean. Everybody has a bit of a laugh at him. <laughs> the new kid, he says, when he first suggests that he's going to kill kind of the, the police captain in Salazar, they all have a good fucking laugh at him. He's not laughing. And he doesn't even take their kind of, he, he doesn't take their jibes or anything because he's so self-assured. He knows exactly that he can do it. I mean, number one, he knows I've been at war. I've killed people, right? I, I can do this. But also he knows... I'm smarter than all of you. I've thought of this plan. None of you have fucking thought of this. You all want to charge out, go to the mattresses, that old expression that they use, which means, you know, when they go to war, you all want to do that when the answer is staring you straight in the face. Me, the clean shirt, the war hero, the one that nobody expects, of course I can go in there and kill these two. They're not going to trust you, Sonny. They're not going to trust you, Clemenza. They're not going to trust you, Tessio. Michael, of course, has planned all this. And it, you know, you can only you can only kind of second guess what his pathology is. But like you say, there is a part of it where you are like, he has created this pathway for himself to maybe not be godfather, but to at least be part of the family, you know? Well that that scene, I think that is 
the perfect embodiment of of this idea of do you have a choice in what you're doing because he gets to the point where he goes into the restaurant he knows that the gun is taped to the back of the, the toilet tank and he gets out when he's gone into the bathroom comes back and there's a pause right there's a moment's pause where we all as the audience know what he has to do next and both characters sort of freeze in front of him is he going to go through with this or or not is he going to kill both of them or not um and look, forgive me i'm gonna go full boring philosopher on you again there's this thing that i used to love right called determinism versus libertarianism and then there's a kind of halfway house in between it called compatibilism which is like soft determinism but the idea is is that at any given moment if you believe in determinism at any given moment there could only ever be one thing that you do next, regardless of whether you think you have free will or not. Every single fibre of your being and cell in your body and th the way that the earth is moving means that there's only ever one thing that you could do next, which means you kind of don't have free will. I mean, there are arguments around this that you might still have free will, but the idea would be that everything is kind of preordained. Like you've got no choice. You're going to do this thing, whatever it is, that's the next thing that you do. And then the flip of that is libertarianism, right? The idea that you have, to a certain extent, you have a kind of makeup of, of who you are and where you are and you had no choice over the time that you arrived, but you have got free will in that you can make decisions and your decisions will have an impact and that they'll then have a, an effect on what comes next, but you'll then be able to make a decision on what will happen after that. And then you'll make a decision on what will happen after that. And what I loved about this film is that I feel like it spends the entirety of it flirting with both ideas that you're sitting there and being like, I don't think he had any, as soon as, as soon as the whole film is a garden of forking paths. And yeah. each time he makes a decision, the previous forking path becomes unavailable to him because he's going into the depths of what he's about to become and there's no turning back. So the moment that he kills those two people, there's no turning back. He's then, mm. unfortunately, he's out. The moment that he chooses to stand on the steps of the hospital with the the kind of guy who has come to see i can't remember what the the character was but he wanted to come see don colleone owed him a favor he wanted to come and check in on him and he stands there and they both the pretend baker. to stand there with the baker that Enzo. is it Enzo. they pretend to stand there with guns decision means that they are then hiding his father because he's at risk which then means that they're further deeper involved and and that is foreshadowed because at the beginning of the film it's this idea of like you're in my debt You'll always, ha I'm, I will ask for a favour and you'll have to do that favour when I call on it, which means that at any given moment, you are not in a libertarianism place. You're not in a place where you can have total control over your destiny and your future. And the thing that I can't make my mind up on is whether Michael ever had a choice, you know, whether, he, whether at any moment he actually ever was able to choose what he was going to be or whether 
circumstance dictated to him that he had to protect his family at all costs because that was just what he had to do. And there was no way he could ever not follow that path. So he was always going to become Don Corleone. He was always going to become Don of the family because Sonny was going to be a hothead. And Don Vito knows that this is all going to kind of play out. And, and I think the thing that it kind of, I just found myself sort of sitting there looking at the logo and the fact that it's got the puppet strings attached to yeah. the to the thing. You're like, wow, is kind of is that saying to us that Michael is on the strings, or is that saying to us that they have the power to pull the strings? You know, and I just found that whole like just from a really geeky geeky perspective, I found that whole thing so fascinating and it curled my noodle man i couldn't stop thinking about it I, I literally couldn't get it out of my head the film ends and he's just lied to his partner he's lied to his wife the transformation is complete oh, he's become How, that's, that's saying it's isn't it and you see the that the completion of that transformation and and then the film just ends and you're like bang and and it the, the way that the door closes, it's just astonishing. Like, because you've seen, haven't you, her, like, pleading with him, is it true? Is it true? You know, did you kill, what's his name? The piece of shit husband, Carlo. Did you kill him? You know, she told no. Don't ever ask me about my business, number one. And then she's like, God, who is this monster? Yeah, and then what's, ha what's become he, of you? He softens and you see Michael come out to the fore, or so she thinks. He says to her, no, of course I didn't. I'll tell you this one time. No, of course I didn't. They have a little cuddle and a kiss and she thinks, oh, he's still Michael. He's, he always yeah. said to me he wasn't, he's not like his family. You know, he's not like his family. And she steps out the room and then they're all there around him, kissing his hand, like scuffing kind of dirt off of his shoulders, all around him, tending to his knees as he stands there knowing that he's the Don and the door closes on him. And she, sh and she shut out. between them. Yeah, yeah exactly. and she's out of it and she couldn't be further from right. it and the film goosebumps is, right the, it, and and this is that thing right is that i'm that i was then just sat there and it was again like i said at the top it's three hours it felt like it whizzed by because every single scene does something you know every scene is progressing the story or taking you somewhere even even the bits when he goes away and he's spending time in Sicily and you, you sort of think like this could potentially be a bit slower, but it's doing, it's, it's doing this huge character development because again, it's putting him in this place where you think he might be making a decision about what his life could be, but then the explosion goes off. He's betrayed and the explosion goes off in his car and it kills his wife. And then it even further cements the fact that he's going to have to go back confront everything and become the the king like he's going to go and take his crown you know can i, can I, I jump in on this part do it yeah, yeah because the, i i found the italy the italy section watching about now it, it's it's a really interesting part because it, it's so true like you say if you're talking about this kind of this this air of like determinism about the about the film Michael is, yeah, okay, he's escaping to Italy, but he's done his part, right? He's done his bit for the family to save his father. He's killed Salazzo and he's killed, oh, no, who is it? Oh, something, whatever it is, the police chief. Mm, um, I'm a fan of MP. And McCluskey. 
McCluskey, right? He's he, and he's got this haven now in Italy, and he's almost like he's liking this this quieter pace of life, this more traditional pace of life. You're seeing this kind of. You're almost he's he's experiencing probably the type of life that before he came over, Don Corleone, his father, Vita Corleone, experienced in Sicily. You know, it, it's more old-fashioned. It's 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 away from the hustle and bustle of New York and everything. There's people with horses and carts. There's people with mules. There's guys dressed in almost old-fashioned clothing with rifles as he walks around this little town. And uh, there's this clear kind of patriarchal system there where the women are all looked after. And, you know, it's it's very ye old world values and... I think Michael is kind of drawn to that and he has this thunderbolt moment with Apollonia and okay, he's had this brush of modernity living in the new world and everything, but he's drawn to her kind of childlike nature. You know, she's been, she's been protected. She's, she's an adult woman, but you know, we understand that she's probably never had a boyfriend. She's definitely, you know, never had sex or anything as, as people would understand, you know, as people would think anyway, from the way that, like we say, that system is kind of set up and women are protected and looked after, you know, they're kind of like, like they say, the men say in, in Sicily, women are more dangerous than a shotgun, you know, because <laughs> of, because of what happens in the way in which they're, they're, they're protected when he first meets Apollonia, obviously, well, when there's that very amusing scene when they're talking about, oh, this beauty and the bar owner's like, go on, tell me more. He's kind of wants in with the lads on the chat. Yeah, yeah, and then the boys, the boys. He, yeah, exactly. And then suddenly <laughs> when he realises it's his daughter they're talking about, you know, you're, they're suddenly like, shit, we need to get out of here. Like, But, you know, you, you've seen him develop this this very old-fashioned, ye olde style relationship where, you know, he's he's been in the war. He's had this modern American kind of girlfriend, fiance there in America who he kind of, he, he, he looks on at his family and their values as an outsider still. When he first attends the wedding in his military garb, he's literally wearing the uniform of the American establishment, you know, there in this, old little pocket of Italy where they're still singing old kind of crude Italian songs at this wedding and all the, all this type of thing that's going on there. And he's there with his American girlfriend saying like, oh, my family do this, but they're very old fashioned people. They're this, they're that. And I'm this kind of man observing all of this. I'm outside of that. I'm not like my family. To then suddenly being there in Sicily, feeling all those feels that his father and his family and forefathers would have done before him and he fancies a bit of that right he fancies what's happened to him in america he's been sent to a war and then he's been there he's seen corrupt police officers he's seen drug dealers he's seen his father people trying to kill his father and he's probably thinking here i am now in sicily in this in this beautiful world with this kind of naive wife who isn't you know okay in a kind of grim kind of male sense hasn't been spoiled by anyone previously but not even in the physical sense hasn't been spoiled by the modernity of existence of culture right he can run away now he's got this bubble he's got this pocket away from the trauma he's faced personally in his life where you know when he's teaching her to drive and she's like meet meet me oh come on michael you know kind of in a quite babyish fashion being like hurry up come on attend to my needs and he's like whatever don't bother me with all this stuff don't you know whatever his his brother's been murdered back home meanwhile back home but he's he's got apollonia and that's fine and he can escape there and then just as we think that 
he can yeah he's married her he can maybe have this happy new life where they can move to another part of italy and just maybe be free of it all he can live a more simple life she's literally even there the tentacles of it the tentacles of that life of that world of the omerta they're there still obviously you can't escape catch it catch up to him can't you can't escape, escape it. it it's just still they, gonna... she gets killed there in front of him and it's not i mean the, the, her is her physical death yeah of course but it's also michael's metaphorical death that is his last death that is the death of the pure naive young good if you like if you want to be binary about it black and white michael corleone from that point he realizes i cannot get away from this this is and it's it's very interesting because I you know I hadn't considered this from this determinism versus libertarianism angle, but when I look at it like that, he can't escape from it, can he? And he knows that, and he knows that with with her death, that part of him has died. That longing for a life that is free from what his family does is dead, and Michael dies with her, and it's back to America, and it's fucking action stations. Yeah, it's we're Don going. hat on. Bang, yeah. this is what I am. Can't run away from it. So it, I, I really kind of like... A, a friend of mine once told me this story, which I, which has stuck with me for years and years and years. And he grew up in a pretty crap part of London. And he said that he used to get the same bus to school every day and get the same bus home every day. And his group of mates would often be getting into scraps with other groups from other schools or local areas. And he said that it it, sort of that when the group got off the bus, you got off the bus and it didn't matter whether you wanted to or not, but if they were going to go and have a tear up with another sort of group of lads, you just did as you were told and you got off yeah. the bus. And the choice was you either get off the bus and have a tear up or you stay on the bus and then your own group come for you and sort of, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they will tell you where to get off because you weren't there to support your group of people. And it always stuck with me because I mean, being a, like, I totally understand that I have a very sort of, working class family and stuff, but still privileged in the fact that I lived in a part of greater London where really I didn't come into conflict with, I didn't sort of come into interaction with that kind of idea that maybe people who grew up in some of the more kind of um, deprived parts of central London might've, might've grown up in. But, I always thought, oh, but you, you always like, you always just have a choice. You don't need to go and get into tear ups. Just don't go, you know? Um, and what this film kind of, I feel like the film is saying it so many times is that even when you think you do have a choice, you don't, you know, sometimes mm. even when you think there's the opportunity to go and do things afresh and go and just kind of make the right decision and do the right thing, you can try and try and try and and it kind of it will sometimes whatever you do you kind of are going to end up where you're going to end up and there was this fascinating thing as well that i um that i thought watching this the character i need to make sure i get this right because this was really interesting uh sal tessio's character yeah. And Don Corleone says, the guy who approaches you 
will be the one who has betrayed you. Mm. That's who the sets one. up the meeting with Barzini, right? Yeah, and he's like, that is the one. And again, he has got himself into a position, Sal has got himself into a position where he feels like he has no choice. It's just business, you know? And it, like everyone, I know, again, it kind of comes back to that theme of uh, sort of the, the code of conduct, the, the, the criminal's code or honour amongst thieves or like to use Pirates of the Caribbean's kind of tech, I suppose parlance would be parlay. Um, <laughs> but that whole idea that like we do it this way because this is how it's done. And you just got to hope that you always fall out on the right side, that the coin flips and it just flips your way. And I found the scene where Sal is suddenly just taken off in the car where he turns to, is it to, to Michael maybe? He's like, for old time's sake, can you give me a pass? And he's like, no, it's, to Tom, it's to Tom, yeah. to Tom, isn't it? Yeah. So can you give me a pass? And he goes, nope, not this time. And he's just taken into the car and the walls just have closed around him. And you feel this suffocating sense of, what is it just claustrophobia that you are like, oh my God, there is no escape, you know? But you, you know that whole kind of, you know, it's just business thing, right? I feel again, that's kind of poking... It's poking that bruise of modernity versus tradition because people can say whatever they want, right? And I think this is the one of the points that the movie is trying to make. You can say all you like that the decision to try and kill my father isn't personal, that it's just business. But it's my fucking dad. It's yeah. fucking personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that was Sonny's point. And I think Michael always understood that as well in in the respect that... And that's kind of what it was like with Tessio. Tessio trying to say it's not personal, it's business. You were one of my father's right-hand men. You were his one of his best friends, one of his longest confidants. And when you thought he was on his way out and you thought I, Michael, his son, wouldn't be able to continue his legacy, you were happy to sell me down the river. And you're telling me that's not personal. Get yeah. in the bin. You know? Yeah. Like you're, it's, you're next. But, it's, but it, it's also like this guy's been around the entire time. You have to be prepared to just cut him off. Bang, gone. You know, you just cut another one out. It's it, like that is the intersection of this, this this sort of family above everything. But who your family is, is up for discussion as well. You know, like because even Tom at one point is kind of like, why are you cutting me out? You know, and you sort of think for a second, I kind of because I haven't seen the film in a long time. That you know that discussion around the hierarchy. I thought that was a fascinating scene mm. when it was like, "This is the decision now. I've made this decision, and this is what's happening." And he's, and I think Tom is probably the only character that manages to go the entire film without there being too much of a deviation in where he sits. You know, even though he loses his position, no one ever. Even when his, even when people come to him and want him to turn, no one really seems to question his loyalty, do they? No, and I don't. I don't think Michael does. It's it's kind of because it's ahead of him. The baptism scene where Mike, yeah, where Michael and 
you know, Vito Don Corleone, wipe out the rest of the heads of the five families to create that parity, to show that, okay, well, we've got a new head of the Corleone family. Every other one of you fuckers is going to have a new head of your family again, and we start again. We go again yeah. kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, he's, and looking, he's looking ahead, right? He doesn't want Tom to be... He, he sees the value in Tom. He knows that Tom is an amazing lawyer and he doesn't want him to be a mobster. He doesn't want him tied into everything that's going to come because he knows he can use him. He wants the Corleone family to be legit, right? But he can't let Tom know that yet. He can't let anybody know that yet. That's that's well, that, kind of what it is. That's another thing in this film. There's one that sort of... I'm, I'm like no qualms admitting that I am not someone that... I am no good at sitting there and having a million thoughts and going, you know what? I'll save that one for when I need it in six months' time. No, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not one of those people. If, I, if I'm I, Sonny, mate, all the way. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, but yeah. I like, and and I feel like there is, I feel like there is a really interesting comparison between Sonny and Barzini. So Barzini really is the guy that's at the heart, a lot of the damage or the, a lot of the kind of like scary stuff that's going on behind the scenes, the stuff with the narcotics, the stuff around the manipulation. I mean, Don Corleone is kind of the, the thing that he finds scary or the thing that kind of stops him in his tracks is the idea that someone is playing a smarter strategy than him, that there is. He didn't see it. Yeah, yeah, that he thought that it was Tatalia, you know. Yeah, yeah, that he missed something and that this was kind of... And, we, I mean, we spoke about the scene earlier on, but Sonny, when he has his mini outburst, when he's kind of, his dad is talking and then he sort of jumps in when they're having a conversation with Salazzo. And that that in itself is this kind of slight bit of weakness that shows that if maybe they got rid of... Don Corleone, there was an opportunity where narcotics could actually become. Well, if, if Sonny becomes the head of the family, then maybe then if his kind of brash, hot headed nature is something we could take advantage of, maybe that suits us. The, the thing that I took from that is that I like it, sort of almost pained me a little bit that the film does show you that. Often it's the quiet ones, the calm, mm. calculated ones, the ones who have the ability to kind of sit on their thoughts and not say anything and hold fire and be the last to speak are often the ones that are doing the most kind of gymnastics in their mind, working out the strategy in the long term. And actually, even though we see Sonny's character as a total hothead and a total kind of reckless, like all of his characteristics are shown to be weakness in this, which like, mm. again, for people like you and I, it's quite tough to take because you're like, <laughs> I quite like authenticity. I quite like the idea of knowing where you stand, being upfront, being open, being honest. These are things that we also claim in, in, in modern society are really important traits. But actually in this film, the, in, in this underworld, in this kind of, in in the kind of the land of the sort of the the five families that actually is the worst possible thing you could have and we sort of are almost encouraged as an audience to judge Sully for his impatience you know for the fact that he can't help himself and he gets himself killed because he was going to leap to his sister's defense you know and it's it's so strange that you actually see then ultimately as Barzini's the one who 
kind of been manipulating everyone. Um, I did. I don't know whether that kind of jumped out for you because I felt quite. An, I quite like Sonny as a character. You know, I thought he was a yeah, great, it's, really it's, great it's fu- character. But it's funny, isn't it? Because you know he's introduced at the kind of the beginning of it as one of the enforcers. You know, he's the one out there squaring up to the FBI, smashing the cameras, and you got that lovely disdainful kind of chucking of the money down in front of the yeah, FBI agent. God, well, how good was that? Buy yourself another camera. Do you know what I mean? That yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, he's he's presented as like one of the most powerful ones. He's going to be, you know, he's like almost like the Don in waiting type thing. But you see as the film develops, as Michael, who is this kind of young, fresh-faced war hero, seen as being quite naive, quite, you know... You know, he's the little brother of the family. That actually really Sonny is the naive, childish one, you know? Yeah. That's that's kind of how they're his development really. But he's not the the funny thing is though, it's it's an interesting, like I think it's so brilliantly written that his character is it's not character development, it's audience development. It's us kind yeah. of getting yeah, yeah. up to speed with it all, right? It's us learning more about the world, about the family, about how it all operates. And it's only when we kind of get up to speed with it all, probably in a way we're kind of on a similar journey to Michael in a certain sense, that when we get to a point when Sonny is killed, you, you realise, well, of course that was going to happen. But you know, did, because you know, when he goes to get in the car, there is that sense of, oh, not good. You know? Well, when he, when they're like, we're going to come with you, he's like, no, no, and just kind of goes off on his own. Yeah, and, and then they know, go and oh, chase him and you're like, oh, you're alone. Yeah. You know that, and suddenly isolated. You know, similar sort yeah. of thing when, when um, Michael says, "Oh, where are all the men that are supposed to be here around my father?" And they're like, "Oh, they went a few minutes ago." And you're like, "Oof, you're alone." Well, and I mean, one of one of the big things in this film, which is done, you know, I mean, like, I think you got to give a big shout out to Francis for Coppola, like he he creates with the the sound design and with the lighting throughout this film an intense feeling of foreboding. Like there's there's a brilliant mm. way in which I think the lighting in particular is used very often to reflect the emotion of a scene. Look at the wedding scenes, you know, you've got very bright, open, you know, colourful scenes. But c- contrast that with then go back into the into the uh, into the Godfather's office, into his quarters. It's shadows and light. There's a high contrast yeah. there. You know, shadows and light close shots creating that kind of intense intimate feel and you don't know where they are either do you you can't locate no no you don't and it's sorry mate go on no 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 no. go on on. i was gonna say similarly that's done through dialogue as well because you have the mother when when sonny first says like you know when you see when you see carlo say shut up connie you know and he's like don't you ever tell her to shut up and like you know you've got sonny doing this right he treats his own wife like shit he's having yeah, an affair yeah he's like tells his wife to shut up and he's so disdainful of her when it's his sister it's that tie to the family to the yeah you know to that so you see that respect that sonny has in certain ways to his own blood to his family and, and the hierarchy again because it's like yeah, the, he's sitting there chatting all of the shit under the sun and then yeah. she says you don't talk business at dinner table and then and then as soon as the the uh, brother-in-law does it, he's like, yeah, don't talk business. Yeah. And that was laugh out loud funny. I really yeah. chuckled at I thought that but was then brilliant. Again, the mother says, don't get involved. 
Don't get, yeah, she says, it's foreboding again. She says to Sonny, don't get involved. It's their wedding. It's their, it's their marriage. Don't get, it's not your place. Don't get involved. And oh, what happens? Man. He can't help but get involved. And it's there, you know, that kind of mother knows best. The elders, sometimes we talk about this clash of old versus new. Sometimes age, experience, having been there, you know, they, they, they know the stuff. And I guess Michael, to a degree, has learned something from Sonny. He's learned that there is a time to strike. There's a time when action is required that sometimes you do need to like kind of not treat everything with caution. And like I say, you, you understand more of uh, Vita Corleone's character, especially once you watch the second movie or if you've, if you've read the book. I'm not just trying to be like, if, and if you've read the book, Tosser, like you'll, you'll get it more. But you, you see the kind of the... The, because one of the things I wanted to ask is really from this film, you don't really see that Sonny and Michael are almost two sides of Don Corleone, right? Because yeah. you see Don Corleone in his youth be a bit more like Sonny in some respects. And you see why people fear him, right? But I guess what he also had was that side of him, like Michael, the colder, calculated side of things. And I think, I guess, Michael, having seen, you know, what's happened in Sicily to Apollonia, the way it, it happens and seeing what's happened to his father himself, knowing that his father in his old age has probably just gotten a bit soft, knows that you've got to have a bit of Sonny as well, right? And yeah. hence comes that, you know, the infamous, the the iconic baptism scene, that juxtaposition between being made a godfather of of his you know of his of his sister sister's child whilst he has sent all his men out to commit a series of horrific murders played to that score like Nina Rotter's score throughout this is unbelievable the godfather waltz that you don't tire of hearing you hear it in no, so many different yeah. variations of it but you still hum along with it every time but then you've got that jarring, terrifying organ music, the way it starts off serene and, you know, and celestial and, you know, holy, turns into that hellish Dracula-type stabbing of the organ keys as you see murder after murder after murder that have been called upon by Michael's hand as he knows, I'm going to fucking show all these lot. Yeah, and the I'm fact not that he's not present. Touch. Yeah. You know, the fact that he's not, he's not there it's just he's made the transition to be the guy from the guy pulling the trigger to the guy who's standing waiting to be told that his orders have been carried out and like all all, all of his enemies have been basically kind of extinguished and and the way in which that they're done as well everything's at close quarters everything is brutal absolutely brutal like no escape for any of them the i think it's only bazzini who, who who kind of seems to get up the steps a little bit doesn't he maybe that gets... shot though from the police officer you know how he gets down on his knees he rests his gun on his forearm yeah and shoots from that long range is is brilliant but they're all all of them they're all they're all trapped aren't they they're yeah, all it's horrible every... Every single one, in the one lift, of them is that one in the revolving door. Um, yeah, coming out the lift, the one in the massage room. Yeah, and and then yeah, the revolving door, and then there's that amazing shot 
through the revolving door. The, the look of intensity on the, on the guy's face as he shoots through the glass. Yeah. And then the, the other one locked in, in his bedroom with his, with his sort of mistress or wife and they kill them both. You know, the, the woman's killed as well so that no one is spared. And then it's cutting back to him kind of saying that he like will repent and he'll like turn away from evil and he would like ignore the advances of the devil or whatever it is. And, and he just like the look in his eyes starts to just flicker and mirror his dad's in that he's not. Yeah. He goes from being a little bit glazed to just staring and it's an intense stare that he starts to have where there's kind of like, it's not feeling anymore. He's getting colder and colder and, and starting to get to this point where this transformation is coming. Like you're, you're not going to be able to get away from it. Can, can I touch on two things in particular? Go, 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 yeah. Um, so it's, it's, I don't think we can, like, there's, there's so many brilliant acting performances in this. The score's brilliant. But just to go again on Francis Ford Coppola's direction for this film, because there's some seriously, like, exquisite choices in this and it's it's really it is a masterclass in building a scene in building suspense and there's two scenes in particular that i think we do need to what one is a, one is a lesser scene it's just one that's always stuck out for me because I, I just i've always really liked it we're talking about that kind of like the the sound design and the use of lighting right it's the first scene when when don corleone is trying to sound out what salazzo is like and he wants to send his one of his main men Luca Brazzi, the big kind of like, you know, the kind of gormless, simple guy who will the, follow. You who's know. been rehearsing his lines at the beginning yeah, of the film, right. which and I still thought fucks was. It up. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, it was, it, there was something quite charming about that, that he knew his place in the pecking order, yet he still wanted, he wanted to show his loyalty. Yeah. You know, he was, he was, he knew he wasn't smart enough to be one of the main guys, but he wouldn't. And even Tom's kind of like, we've got to get this oath in here because he wants to say thank you. But on some level, Don Corleone is like, okay, you're going to come and show your loyalty. I will, I'll repay that with giving you a job. Anyway, go on. Sorry. What, what we understand about Luca Brasi is he's, he is one of like the Corleone family's biggest enforcers. He's like, he's the Terminator. He's like, he's, yeah, he's the terrifying big boy. of people. So, it's the scene when he goes to meet Salazzo and it's it's silent other than his footsteps that you hear him just walking down that corridor, down that kind of dark. It almost looks like, and I wouldn't be surprised if Kubrick has taken, borrowed from that for The Shining, which came a few years later on, that long red kind of exquisite corridor, which I guess is a hotel or something like that, some kind of big building where he's meeting kind of Salazzo and Bruno Tatalia, I think it is that he's meeting. And you just hear that, like the, the, the steps, but it's almost like when you, when you kind of know, obviously that Luca Brasi is going to get killed, it's almost acting as like a, a stopwatch, like a metronome. It's kind of, yeah. count, it's literally counting down Luca Brasi's life. But you, you, that's all that you hear though. You just hear that, like that steady rhythmic kind of step, step, 
step down that echoing, billowing kind of corridor. And then, like I say, he get, he goes to the meeting and it's very dimly lit again. High contrast. You've got faces poking out of the shadow. You don't really know what's going on. And then, obviously, the knife goes through his hand and you see suddenly a shadowy figure again appear behind Luca Brazzi to strangle him with the, you know, garrote him with the piano wire. And it's the first kind of flicker of violence and, you know, terror that you see in that film, but it's just slowly, carefully built up to. That's but even number it one. Shows, but it showed him getting ready as well. Yeah. You yeah. know, that, I mean, that in itself is quite, again, it's quite solitary, you know, like he's there to do a job, but again, he's on his own. You know, you're, they're showing that this guy is alone. So he'll be going to sort of into the lion's den, as it were, but he'll be of just just one person in there. So instantly you're unsafe because you're not... It, it, you always feel in the scenes when you can see a lot of people around, okay, strength in numbers, whenever anyone's on their own and the fact that, like you said, that he's kind of so isolated and kind of seems to be going very similar to the wedding scene in that they have this kind of like the den where... The, the serious stuff is going on and then the party's going on outside but then there's there is the, the kind of hive or the nerve center you feel like he's going deeper and deeper as he's doing that walk down the hallways and you're right it is quite cubic-esque isn't it just in terms of mm. like the setup of the corridors and that singular figure walking through the middle of it um you're just aware that he's going further and further into trouble and deeper and deeper into trouble. But the way that into it gets so... the belly so, of the beast, right? Oh, God. Into hell. Get, like, and it gets... De- and even when the way the, the, the guy behind the bar greets him, you're like, this is this is off. <laughs> like, yeah. something's not quite right here. And they're and like the, demons, the, aren't they? It's literally the like he's in hell. You know, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? It, it does remind me, actually, a little bit of the um, the, the, the guy who plays... Um, the guy who's in The Shining that's also in Blade Runner um, who is, is, is plays Terrell in in Blade Runner and he's the barman in uh, in The Shining as well. It kind of has a similar sort of energy like that, you know, this kind of like quite unsettling energy and then suddenly knife in the hand and like you said, the piano wire around the, the throat and it's so graphic and, and, and violent and you see him... Li- the life being drained. I mean, what a phenomenal acting performance as well. Yeah. Like, it's so, so good. It really it's is. Horrible. I mean, fabulous. And what was the other one you're going to pick up, mate? Sorry, I, so, I, I mean, we, we couldn't go through this podcast without really focusing on this scene, mate. And that's that's the dinner scene, you know, between Michael and... Remind me of his name again, mate. McCluskey. When he said it again. McCluskey and Salazzo. Because that that is something literally studied in film school. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, really? The, the, oh, yeah, that's the, so the, cool. The way in which that scene is put together, the the tension, the way it's built. Obviously, you have the journey on the way there, but the fact that Michael is this—he's still this this novice in that world, right? We, we they know it, he knows it. He's in unfamiliar territory. He is on his own now. You know, Michael is like like we're talking about. We've just seen Luca Brazzi in that previous scene go into the belly of the beast on his own. But unlike Luca Brazzi, Michael has a Michael has a plan. Michael's the one who is two steps ahead of these lot, right? And the way in which that is is just gradually, but you know, you got McCluskey's just like nonchalance. 
he does yeah this is just some stupid kid whose jaw he just broke whatever he doesn't give a shit like you know and Salazzo, I think, probably has an air of respect for for Michael, but still kind of realises he's he's minor in the pecking order, that he's going to be some sort of a messenger for the rest of the family. For Sonny, really, that's the one that he's he's trying to speak to through this. And the way you just see the layers and layers and layers of that film, of that scene build up, it, it, not first you've got the the waiter who comes in and their whole pause this chat like their whole chat is paused because the waiter's there unscrews the cork pours yeah. them a couple of glasses yeah. they they hand the glasses around and you're like fucking just get out of the scene you know yeah, and you've all been there right? we've all been in the restaurant yeah. i'm sure you've been in a restaurant when you know perhaps you know you and you're you and the missus or you and a friend right? you're having a deeper meaning or an argument right and then the waiter comes over and they're like, okay, what would you like? Do you need a minute? Yeah, we, we just need a minute. And you kind of talk it and then it will go back to, they come back a few minutes later. Okay, here's the wine. And they do it. Is, is the, yeah, the wine's fine, mate. It's great. I'll have whatever the, you know, the, the caprese go away. <laughs> you know, it's that type of thing. You you feel that so acutely. But then not only that, it it, it is when, you know, when the chat starts to get a bit more serious, when when I think they very purposefully made the decision to have Solazzo and Michael speak in Italian, in Michael's broken Italian, and it, uh, uh, maybe it was the version I was watching, but I didn't have that no, subtitle. No subs. No subs. Yeah. Deliberate, so you immediately, right? yeah, you feel alienated from it. You, f- you yeah, feel so on we're edge. in McCluskey's because we're hang on, wh- wait, where have they got? The, like, is he yeah. is he committing to something? Is he like is he getting it right? I mean, that was amazing. That was so. so you good. have a vague understanding because they, they're obviously purposefully using kind of words or very simple sentences to intimate. I have a lot of respect yes. for your father. I didn't yeah, mean yeah. this. However, you need to understand modern the business, the this, the that. And it's when Michael goes off into that toilet and you start to hear the sound of the subway carriages building and building and building. Do you know what I mean? Just very, because gradually at the beginning when he's first in there and you hear it just kind of in the background as a part of the scene, as part of, you know, the mise-en-scene kind of thing. It's there as, as just audio because it happens to be where they're sat in this restaurant. But when you start to hear that sound, the noise, the inescapable kind of metallic clanking, you can't escape from it, that it engulfs the whole scene. I don't know, maybe it's somehow metaphorical of this kind of this, this terror, this sound, this, you know, this, this thing that you can't escape from. It just gets louder and louder and louder. If it's Michael switching off his brain, really, and you're just hearing that, what's going on around him in that moment. But it's perfect, you know, how he sits. But he does, but then, the, he does the thing where he flattens his hair down. You yeah. know, it just takes two seconds and sort of flattens his hair down and you're sort of like, the significance of that and why has he done that? Why is he taking that extra second? You know, the sort of composing and, 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 himself. And, and and the fact that the plan was come straight out of the bathroom and pop him. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. he doesn't. He sits yeah. back down yeah. for dinner, you know? Yeah. And and there were so many points where McCluskey sort of flickers towards the, the bathroom where you're like, are they going to get up? Are they gonna like surely they're yeah. gonna realise and he's sort of clunking around, but the sound of the, the train line is is sort of like this it's kind of like you know when you're in you, you know when you're in a, a high pressure situation, everything feels fast and everything mm. feels rushed and there's not that calm. There's not that sort of 
calmness where you can just go, okay, I'll just take a second and think about this. And so often, I mean, we saw it with Pulp Fiction, but so often there is just these kind of like these intermissions in life where you kind of have the bathroom break, but he can't even get away from the chaos in the bathroom because he's got that massively noisy kind of subway sound. And then the fact that, like you said, the fact that he kind of goes back out and he almost has a moment where you're like, oh, maybe he's not going to do this. And yeah, sort of he leaps it? to his feet, leaps it, like does it so fast. And the I, I found it fascinating, the, the order in which he did it. Because like you said, McCluskey's, he's been sort of looking around like, I'm going to be absolutely fine. You know, like what, nothing for me to worry about. But he shoots him, he shoots him twice, which I thought was quite fascinating because they yeah. sort of said, they said, make sure you sort of like shoot him in the head, clean, get it done. But he doesn't get it right. You know, he, do, he he's point blank and he doesn't get it right. He shoots him in the wrong place and has to shoot him again. And then the fact that he falls forward and the table flips over. You know, it was supposed to be so clean. It was supposed to be so ruthless. It was supposed to be just in, out, get it done. It felt brutally real, didn't it? Yes, exactly right. It kind of, it turned into a, a real quite messy thing. And it was supposed to just, everyone's going to be so uh, taken aback by what's happened that they won't even notice that you've dropped the gun. You know, he doesn't even remember to drop the gun until he gets halfway out the door. Yeah. And and that, that kind of naivety and and ignorance to how to do it it's sort of again like to come back to the point we made earlier on it's these it's these it's almost like um the lights going out on future versions of him that are now no longer a possibility they're just disappearing options and and versions of him are disappearing because he kills the first one and it's like wow okay you've done this now and now you've just shot the police chief there's no coming back. You know, there's another part of your life that's just been severed. You know, you're, but like you're you say, from, from that point, he's not the one pulling the trigger anymore. You know? No. And no, maybe no. that's part of it where he's like, well, I'm not made for this, but I'm made to be the guy that can put the chess pieces in the right place. You know? Yeah. Oh, so it's phenomenal, mate. And uh, do you know what? I, I, You mentioned earlier on your um, a couple of the things that this has influenced for you that jumped out straight away. What are the other ones that you, in kind of like, in terms of your pop culture references from The Godfather that you just instantly think of? Well, it's, it's making an offer he can't refuse, right? That is yeah. like, I, I, I don't know if that was created by The Godfather, but that is, like, come on, everybody says that now, right? It's, it's constantly done. But from, you know, the horse's head in the bed, that's something that we've seen parodied in the simpsons again that's another one that we've we've mentioned before about how they parody stuff but i've seen it in various different i think even i think i want to say something like only fools and horses has done something similar oh, do you know really? what i mean like it, it I, I believe so i think it was that or one of those kind of things but you know it, it literally it was the blueprint for the likes of scorsese who came after this yeah you know like well, even for, down to things like the wire you know, yeah, yeah. like for David see, Chase, who's so, the Sopranos, you know, like so yeah. much of the Godfather is in the Sopranos purposefully as well. They took, they obviously talk about the Sopranos. They, 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 as young Italian American mobsters, probably grew up watching that, wanting to base themselves on Michael and Sonny and all that type of thing, you know, like, and you see that come out in the way they, they speak and the way they talk. But 
even just the way in which David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, has structured everything, the type of themes that are in there that play out in a modernized version of things that, you know, take place in in The Godfather. You know, we've seen it in whatever, in Casino, in Goodfellas. There's... You know, there's a, there's so many movies that have have come as a, as a result of this. It really was genre defining. You know, then because you, go on, go on, sorry. Well, I was going to say because prior to this, you know, you had Marlon Brando in movies like you know, On the Waterfront. You know, there was like old sort of James Cagney mobster movies and things like that. But you know, none of them in this it, it modernized it. It made it real. It made it less of a fantasy of like this kind of scary wise talking, you see, don't let me get my tummy gun kind of thing into an actual, this is how it works. This is how it's structured. This is why it's structured this way, you know? And it creates, like I was sort of saying at the top, that sense of moral ambiguity, why the omerta exists and is the society that we live in, this established society, is it any better at the end of the day? Because the backdrop of this, really, the backdrop of this is Mario Puzo was writing this and everything, was another world war in which millions of people have been killed, millions of Jews have been murdered as part of a genocide, as part of a pogrom that's taken place in Europe. Millions of young men from all corners of the globe have been sent to their deaths and nuclear bombs have been dropped on Japan. And that's all done in the, what, the name of righteousness in terms of good, as we would have that kind of fed to us you know we see kind of themes of the church that's abuse of power and everything like that is present within the godfather the conflicting nature of catholicism of religion there's there's just so many themes here that are explored in such a sophisticated and brilliant way it's why a film like this that i i would honestly say and i don't even i'm not even just trying to be calm like kind to this movie it's one of my favorite films of all time it's probably one of many people's favourite films of all time, right? But I, I, I tried to watch this for the purposes of this podcast, tried to watch this through objective eyes, right? And it still holds up. It's 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 just a masterpiece. It's brilliant. Like, in, in the way it's written, the way it's put together, the way it's acted, it's one of those things that just comes along where it's all come together right it's like it's it's the magic of the universe the golden ratio has been the the planets were aligned in the right place when this movie got made because totally right totally right you know because like francis for coppola we're talking about tom cruise he had to fight to get this film made he had to fight to get budget he had to fight against kind of the sneering hollywood execs that thought who wants to watch a load of stuff about Italian Americans at the end of the day? Like I say, this is all this old fashioned James Cagney shit. Hollywood's had all this old mobster mafioso shit. Nobody cares about this stuff. And Francis Ford Coppola's vision of this was this isn't just about mobsters. This is about family. This is about all these type of themes that you know I've just outlined there. This is this is a saga. This is a modern day epic of about the human condition about everything that we face and i want to tell that support me help me tell that help me share this vision and they were like you know whatever they gave him some budget and he you know he managed to get this thing made and 
in the lead up to it, you know, there was all the obviously sort of conservative America. Why are we glorifying this? Why are we putting a focus on organized crime, on the mafia? They're a scourge on society. Why are we trying to show them as anything other than evil? Blah, 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 blah. And this movie dropped and it blew people's fucking minds. Like people were like, wow. Like, you know, it, like we kind of, we're talking about, you know, with certain other films, you know, I'm not comparing Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning to The Godfather. <laughs> like, you know, like there are some movies that just have that impact, right? Where it transcends what people have just seen on screen. And, you know, a perfect example is The Sopranos. The fact that people are re-watching it now, that it, The Godfather has birthed something like The Sopranos, where this, you know, you see sometimes people... I can't remember who it was, but one of one of the kind of like you know broad street journalists, as the Sopranos was gaining in popularity, tried to have some snarky comment about like, oh, people just you know glorifying this disgusting program that's all about toxic masculinity, and you're like, then you clearly haven't watched it. If you is think that that's what, what you've if, taken yeah, from that, if, if you, you know? don't think that this is a, a clear and obvious lampooning of toxic masculinity and patriarchal systems and what it leads to. That's exactly what the fucking program's about, right? And similarly with The Godfather, it had this cultural legacy and this cultural impact where people were suddenly like, okay, well, we've used this, this vessel to get people through the door because they want to see mobsters shooting and killing one another. But now what are we left with? We're left with this idea of the old world being the post-world world war ii world what it's birthed what world are we creating what what values do we have what do we value anymore and it's there's still you know you were talking about it at the top there's still the, the the thing that makes this kind of enduring the legacy of this film is that there are questions that are posed okay in in this example the the binary example is drugs good or bad right what's their place it's a modern thing creeping in but we've had this all throughout history, the television coming along. <laughs> is, is that good or bad? Is that going to destroy our youth? Is the internet coming along? Is, you know, is people having sex outside of marriage now? Is this bad? Is women's liberation? Is this a good, is this the end, the decay of society? You know, equal rights for LGBTQ plus people, which is a, a thing that's still raging on now. Is that leading to the death of, do you know what I mean? There's always a moral panic about something and just, the way in which this theme is kind of expanded of like the old world, the new world, do you embrace it? Do you fight against it? Nothing is right or wrong. Do you know what I mean? I mean, in in that example, probably in some of those examples I've used there, that we're talking about progress, we're talking about, you know, progressive attitudes. I'm not saying there's anything that's wrong there, but I'm talking about instilling the way in which conservative traditional values aren't always compatible with what's happening now right with the way well, in which the world is changing and not everyone's going to ever accept not no 100 percent of people are going to accept change you know people are not no. ready to accept change and i think that scene as well where they're sat down with the families and and he is forced to accept some kind of progress even he has to accept that there will be the future will arrive and even he who is so set in his ways and said no was going to have to accept that there was going to be some sort of progress and some and the future was going to arrive whether he liked it or not um and even though there was a strategy there for him 
it, it, there was kind of a bit of an unstoppable force there in that he was going to have to kind of like take that hit. And I think that's the, I think that's the thing, right? Watching this, it kind of, it, it holds up because all of the themes and the challenges are still the same ones that we find in, in our day to day. We're all still trying yeah. to make sense of the fact that things change all the time and we can kind of like buck against them or fight against them. And sometimes in, in, in limited cases, you manage to kind of keep the, the floodgates up and occasionally you can kick it down the road for a little bit of time. But more often than not, once you start seeing the future coming, it's kind of a bit of an unstoppable force. And, and it's just about how you kind of manage to stem the flow of that and, and accept it in a way that that works for you and I thought that was just a it was so fascinating that seeing a film where it was kind of like oh narcotics you know like we said at the top it's like this this scary thing on the horizon that has now kind of found its way into life absolutely everywhere all over the world um yeah and it's just magnificent I mean I even I even to go back just to, to kind of cultural references I sort of I can give two here that are just kind of quite laughable, really. But on the one hand, you've got something like Top Boy that has played with all of the themes that we mm. see mm. throughout this film, right? And it does mm. it in a very different setting, but it does it in a similar kind of way with the idea of gangs in in London and and, and again doing it in a escaping kind of escaping from a, a from a circumstance yeah right? a political underclass right uh, yeah. this kind of again this idea that you there is a code that that you adhere to and and certain ways that you can behave and places where you can go and places where you can't and then on the flip of that the furthest opposite end of the spectrum there is an episode of Modern Family where yeah. Phil Dunphy, Phil Dunphy. Is, is about yeah. to be godfather yeah. um, <laughs> to, to, to yeah. I guess it's Jay's uh, baby, right? And yeah. at the same time, he's taking out his real estate competitors and yeah, he has yeah. like he has luke go around and yeah. shoot with a bb gun uh, some of the balloons <laughs> at, at, at an open house and it just and the music's yeah. playing yeah, yeah, and yeah. and you're seeing him go through the emotion and it's like how is it that you can have something in 1972 that is so unbelievably impactful that it is parodied to the in one of the possibly greatest sitcoms of our time whilst do, do you remember also... the Maltesers advert Putting yeah the Maltesers of course. in the cheeks of Don Corleone you know yeah I, the, the, it, it can be parodied on one hand and then also um on the other hand it can be used as the template and the backdrop for one of the grittiest tv sort of dramas or, or I yeah. guess it technically would be a TV drama because it was Channel 4 first, wasn't it? That, that's yeah. ever been created in the UK. You know, it, 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 it's, it's quite fascinating and it's, yeah, it's just another absolute scorcher of a film, mate. I think one, one of the sort of lasting things, I think, I guess one of the last points I wanted to make on the film is that, and it's something we can all take away from this film. There's something we can all take, you know, it's, 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 it's also to, to <laughs> To to throw back to to Mission Impossible again, you know, there's the riddle in that what's always coming but never arrives tomorrow, right? And we yeah. talk about that with the future. And there's a real clear definition of this of passing the baton, right? Of the baton being passed, the legacy continuing from 
Don Vito to Michael and then from Michael to who knows where after that point. But this sense of values, of traditions, of thoughts, these are all thoughts. These are all things that have been created in somebody's mind at some point or another. These aren't tangible things. This isn't handing a literal baton down. This isn't handing a rock. These are ideas. Yeah. And it, it, we are all custodians of ideas, of a, of a point in history. And we can choose to carry some of those things forwards and give those to the people of tomorrow. Or we don't, and we leave some of those things behind. You know, we've spoken about kind of TV soap operas and their place, and those are gradually, bit by bit, kind of being left behind. But, you know, that's a very trite example. But, you know, we, we, we talk about that in terms of values, in terms of progress, in terms of, like we say, that fight for equality for marginalised groups. And that is something that the rattle gets louder every single time that baton is passed. So it, it's, it's, I think the film is really making that point to remember that, yeah, okay, times change. There are things to carry forward, as, as you see with Michael, right? He does do things somewhat differently from his father, but there are certain things you can still learn from the people that come previously to you. And there are certain ideas that they may seem dated, in 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 a sense as a person or whatever but there are still some things that you can take and you can carry forwards so uh, to, to choose carefully and just remember that you are always a, a custodian of history and you know to to, to leave that legacy you know what, what we do in this life will echo throughout history right to, yeah. to reference one of the other films that we've done so and also you know. you're the you're the you're the what is it the, you're the blink of an eye like in terms of your actual your footprint um it, it just it, it yeah this was this was magnificent mate i've got to we've got to ask the the big one who's your mvp i, I can i say mate this is a first like in terms of you know how we've 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 it's it's a pod for first basically we, we've not done the spoiler alert I really don't know if I could do it for this. I, I honestly, I don't know if I could do an MVP for this film. I really don't because... It's the hardest one we've had so far. It's just... It's, they, I think a big part of why this is so hard to do is because they are the... You know, at the beginning, we said this doesn't fall into classic convention around storytelling. Yeah. It feels like this film has two main characters, if not kind of three or four lead characters, you know, that, that all get this. If you take the scene where Vito and Michael are, are sat in the garden, that is like two absolute heavyweights. It's like the Tyson Fury fight, yeah. you know, where yeah. he's down on the canvas and sort of bounces back up and they're both just slugging at each other with this kind of immense ability that they have to the point where I think... Don Corleone goes and sort of sits on the other side of him and they're almost kind of mano a mano back to back and you're like, Jesus, man, these are just two titans just just nailing every beat. And, it, 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 you know, in that, it, the funny thing is, in the, in the real sense as well, it was, it was Brando passing the baton to Pacino yeah. In, in, yeah. A, it, it, yeah. in a screen sense as well. It's, you know, there's so much there, but... You know, the whole cast, I think, the way in which the the whole film is written, I think every cast member 
does their very best with everything they're given and every there's 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 not a wasted moment on screen you know everyone gives it their best and it's just such uh it's such a tapestry it's such a you know it's it's a jigsaw puzzle right the whole film that everyone has their place and it's just it's it's just it's a masterpiece it's all you can say from start to finish it's it, it this film I will be I will be shocked if this film isn't still loved in fifty years time. I know things change, but you know this movie is, it's 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 over fifty years old now, and like I say, it still feels no less relevant today. Yeah, and it's, for me, it's not by chance that you look through the cast, and every single one of the the kind of leads in this film, you can go through there they're kind of IMDB and see that they've gone on to go and make at least 10, five or 10 other enormous hits. You know, even someone like Talia Shire was in, was in Rocky, you know, you, you've got Diane Keaton, James Kahn, people that are literally, they're kind of, this will be one of the greatest films of all time. They also will have done three or four, other unbelievably good films that most actors would give their left hand to have one of those, you know, it's Mm -hmm. not by chance. These are like, this is kind of a, in terms of a collection of, of talent, they, whether it was stumbled across or whether, whether by design this collection of just absolutely outstanding talent that that are just tough almost to top this isn't it in terms of a cast it's it's very difficult to to find another film that can boast this level of talent so carefully encased within one film and also stand which it is exactly and then could stand on their own and if you saw them as the lead in another film you'd be like yeah of course you know, yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And I'm assuming that because you are sat with a nice glass of red, that this <laughs> is the finest of fine wines for you. It, it is. Look, you know, look, there are some unpalatable themes in there. Some, you know, obviously the way in which like people of colour are spoken about within the film, but that's presented through the lens of old school, traditional mobsters, mafiosos. There are old school traditional values, the attitudes towards women, but I don't feel that that's glorified. And I, I feel that the film is, I would dare I say, kind of progressive in a way at the time that it's showing you that this world is murky. Yeah, it's, there's there's a moral ambiguity there, but many of these old traditional values, these patriarchal values, women are marginalised, women are abused, women are the props of men. They are treated like shit, and I don't think that is something that is shied away from. You it know? certainly doesn't like, feel. It certainly doesn't feel, feel as if the film is trying to say that those are like, oh well, all the mobster stuff is not great, but the way they treat women is good. You know, it's it, it, yeah. it, everything. It very much feels like it rolls into one of this kind of horrible, grotty like existence where the rules are the rules of that world and they're all horrendous but for some reason everyone in that world seems to adhere to them you know well and it's this you know they kind of you've got this you've got this mafioso in the meeting of the five families where he's kind of saying you know oh, i've got this moral stuff i don't like drugs i don't want it in schools i don't want it near given to children but whatever just give it to black people 
You know, yeah. and you're like, what the fuck's this? You know, and, I, I, and like I said, I don't think that, again, I don't think that's kind of being like, oh, yeah, actually, I get his point. I think it's showing you, like, these people have stupid, outdated ideas. This guy thinks he's making some kind of moral statement and then just immediately goes on to make this, like, horrifically racist yeah. racist counterpoint to it, where you're like, these guys just chat shit. And they, in like, passing. pick and choose the rules. And in yeah. passing as well, so, like, n- 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 didn't break stride. And that really, like, when I was listening, I was like, what? But then yeah. you sort of think, like, wow, that's literally what y- y- what would be happening, you know? They're, they're only thinking that the sole thing that they're thinking is... I am the leader of my family and my family needs to prosper at the cost of everyone else. Precisely. Literally everyone else. And it's not, I don't think it's glorifying it. I, I think it's actually a, a comment to the contrary. I think it's saying like, th- this is that this sort of a path that leads you to become, basically this study is how power a film that it's a film that essentially studies how power can corrupt an individual that at the beginning of the film seems to be on the outside and by the end is at the very heart of the beast you know it becomes the very thing that all of us would dread to become so yeah mate i I thought this was just phenomenal absolutely phenomenal the ratings are going to be pretty off the chart for this one mate because I can say to you up front that in IMDb's top 100, The Godfather is number two. Is it only Shawshank? Um, Shawshank is number one, yeah. Godfather is number two with a 9.2 rating. Wow. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. Let's have a look because this is... You type The Godfather and it brings up a lot of options. Rotten Tomatoes, The Godfather, critics rating on this. 97% 97% rated fresh, Oof. 98% audience score. Metacritic. I mean, we, sh- we should we should bear in mind this film won the best picture. It won best actor for Marlon Brando. And I think it won best screenplay as well, I want to say. Um, as well as countless other awards. Metacritic as well have given The Godfather. Let's have a look. So I don't want the PC game. Wow. The Godfather on Metacritic, 100%. Um, and it's got the lauded Metacritic must-see badge. We know how, how infrequently that that is given out, mate, but 100% on, uh, on Metacritic. It is... Look, man, look, at least... Okay, sorry for anybody watching this, but for anybody listening to this, you know, and there probably will be some edits here and there, but still... Thus far, the running time is over two hours on this podcast talking about this alone. And I feel like we're cutting this short, mate. I feel like yeah, I could have spoken about this the film. Yeah, scratch the surface on that film. For so you know? much more. But it's 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 just unbelievable. Yeah. What, what a piece of work. You know? Unbelievably like, good. Like, and it, I'm so glad. Like, The thing is, right, is when you take those on, you, you do a film like this, it's such a big one to do. Do you sort of feel like you've got to do it justice? But it was just watching it back it was every bit as phenomenally kind of the the depth and the detail of every single part of it i feel like you said could have gone could have done far more and we also have we have a phenomenal film for next week and a first on oh, byob yeah. 
how exciting is this? I'll get there. It almost feels wrong to do the music, but bring it down. <laughs> but, but like, for, for like the most uplifting and fun light film ever, mate, technically it should be my pick, but tell us what we're doing next week. Well, yeah, so we're going to give you, we're going to give you a buy. So your, your pick will be <laughs> the week to the next after. Round. But we, we couldn't help but notice because, you know, we've been sort of talking about the idea of watching a classic movie together, right? In a, in a good outdoor setting. And now as summer has rolled around, we've, you've seen us in our beetroot best in some of these podcasts over the past few weeks. It is now obviously the time for the outdoor screens to appear all over the place. And a film that has been on both of our lists that we both sort of said we've got to do this at some point finally landed. Um, I'm not sure on which company it is that's doing it, but one, like we say, one of these outdoor screenings um, has come up with Pretty Woman. And I was like, Hainsey, you, you think of what I'm thinking? Oh, you know? big time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, big time. Richard Gere, so- Julia Roberts, Cheers United, I'm in. Julia Roberts is, for me, one of the greatest of all time. No messing around. I adore her. Absolutely Brilliant. adore her. And it, so like, it's, it's BYOB and we will BYOB as well. Exactly. Picnic chairs, charcuterie boards, <laughs> glasses oh. of red wine. Outside. Let's just hope it doesn't rain, mate. You know, that's, that's the big Very one. good point. I will bring camping chairs and... No glassware allowed, so some placky glasses so we can have a good glass of red wine as well. Oh, mate. Looking forward to it. And I hope you all are too. Sensational. I'm, yeah, I'm floating after this podcast, mate. I've thought... Such a... I I loved re-watching that. I've loved talking about that film with you, mate. And, you know, it'd it'd be nice to have something a bit lighter next week with Pretty Woman. Because don't forget... It will also be the week of Barbie and Oppenheimer as well. So I expect an extended conversation about both of those films. (laughs) Yeah, if you haven't had enough fuss today, get ready for next week. It's the cinematic event of the summer. It's upon us. You know, let's enjoy it. Cheers, mate, as always. Love that, mate. Great selection once again and roll on Pretty Woman.